But just by way of introduction, as they're distributing the Bibles, remember, we are in a series of sermons where we are thinking through uh, what we believe as a church. We're thinking through our statement of faith, which is called the Second London Baptist Confession, written in 1689. And today we're in chapter 5 of that confession, and you can find that printed on pages 9 and 10 of your bulletin. At various points in the sermon, I'm going to refer to sections there. So along with your Bible uh, in Genesis 50, which is page 44 of those blue Bibles, um, you might keep open or, or have a finger in your bulletin here to chapter 5, of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is on divine providence. And providence is an interesting word which we're going to unpack here. And as we work through this particular chapter, I want us to answer three questions. So if you're taking notes, this is the outline for the sermon. Three questions. Number one, what is providence? What is providence. So we're going to get the definition right up front, and then we're going to settle into Genesis chapter 50, verses 14 to 26, and we're going to see an illustration of God's providence working out in the lives of Israel. Uh, and there we want to sort of ask and answer two questions, two more questions. So the first question is, what is providence? The second question is, what is life like when we don't believe in God's providence? What is life like when we don't believe in God's providence. And then we want to flip it. Number three, what is life like when we do believe and understand God's providence? What is providence? What is life like without believing it? And what is life like when we believe it? Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are God alone. We do thank you that before the worlds were formed, before there was ever a creation, you were God alone then too. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And we praise you because you uphold the universe with the word of your power. And we praise you because you sit enthroned in heaven and you do whatever you please. And you are working out all things according to the counsel of your will. And so we praise you, for you are God running things in your universe. And we pray you'd help us to understand that and to see that from your word, and that we might have our hearts, O oh Lord, strengthened, and our souls or our faiths deepened, uh, and our hope, O oh Lord, our hope secure. Bless this your word, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read together from Genesis chapter 50. Follow me there from verses 14 to the end of the chapter. And we'll give some definitional work and then we'll come back to these verses. Verse 14. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be. Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent the message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. What is providence? Well, providence is the sort of Webster's dictionary definition, the protecting and the providing care of God for all of his creation. It's God protecting and providing all of his creations, but it's more than that. Providence is the word that we use to describe the divine direction of all things. When we say something is providence or providential, we're acknowledging that God has acted in the world, that God has done something to demonstrate his, his rule, his control, his authority, his care and protection of what he has created. And providence teaches us that in one way or another, sometimes seen and sometimes unseen, that God is running all things. Have you ever heard someone say, God moves in a mysterious way. It's wonders to perform, quoting that, that first line from that wonderful hymn. But, well, they were not only referring to that hymn, they were talking about providence. God moves in ways that are mysterious to us, in ways that we don't often see, in ways that we don't understand, and even if he told us, we wouldn't fully understand. But, but he is moving his, his wonders to perform. And the Bible speaks of providence really throughout its, its pages, but let me give you just a, a couple of texts by way of illustration, and then we'll look at the definition that we have in our statement of faith. Think there of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, where Paul writes there, he says, In him we have obtained inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, that, that little pregnant phrase there, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, all those words together mean providence. Or think of a, a verse that many of us know by heart and, and quote it often and, and rightly treasure, Romans 8:28. For we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that working all things together according to his purpose, providence. It's God showing his care, showing his love for what he has created. 
Now, our statement of faith captures this in chapter 5, verse 1. Look there in your bulletin. You'll see it at the top of page 9. And if you will, let's read this together um, and read this summary. It's one of those paragraphs in our statement that, that at least for me and I hope for you, causes the heart to want to worship. There's a pulling up of the heart toward glory and toward heaven in these words. And and really what the writers are trying to do is not create things about God, but rather to summarize things about God, things that are true about God, that are stated in the Scripture, just as we've seen with those two verses. So read this with me. God who, in infinite power and wisdom, has created all things, upholds, directs, controls, and governs them, both animate and inanimate, great and small, by a providence supremely wise and holy, and in accordance with his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable decisions of his will, he fulfills the purposes for which he created them so that his wisdom, power, and justice, together with his infinite goodness and mercy, might be praised and glorified. Amen. That's who God is, and that's how God works. He works by a supreme providence, and and in that providence, notice what the statement is saying, we see so many other excellencies about God. His wisdom, his power, his, his justice, his mercy, and his goodness, and in that providence, when we observe them, we're provoked to praise God, aren't we? How many of you have ever had a situation in your life where something worked out for your good. And you could not have predicted it. You didn't see it coming. You couldn't have planned it. You weren't even expecting it. But but all of a sudden, when things were headed uh, south, something happened just at the right time to lift you out of the hole you were headed in. That's providence. And what we want to understand is how that providence makes a difference in our lives, how we live it out practically, and how it provokes praise to God. And to do that, we want to now look at Genesis chapter 50. And we want to look, first of all, at verses uh, 15 to 18. We want to consider there the brothers of Joseph. Now, verse 14 tells us, gives us the context. This is just after they have buried their father, Jacob. Jacob is the last of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. He has, as many of you know, 12 sons. And his 12 sons become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And now we've come down to the conclusion of this narrative about the 12 tribes of Israel. They have buried Jacob, excuse me, in verse 14. And it was a huge funeral. If you read verses 1 to 13, all of Egypt kind of goes up out of Egypt to bury Jacob. And there is the whole family, 12 sons, their wives, and and their children. And they're coming back now into Egypt where they will discover God's providence. And maybe it's helpful right here to just give you a bit more context. In Genesis chapter 37 is where we first meet Joseph. He's 17 years old. He's a bit of a mama's boy. And he's daddy's favorite. And we know that because mom and dad have pitched in and made him this coat of many colors, right? So he dressed up in in Gucci or whatever it is, and his brother's uh, out in the field with Carhartts on, right? And so, you know, here's Joseph, favored by his parents, 17 years old, and the boy still ain't working. We know that because the brothers are out in the field, and the dad says, go check on your brothers and see what they're doing. So he's also a tattletale and a spy, right? (laughs) 
And not surprisingly, the brothers don't like him much, right? And so he comes out in the field and he meets the brothers. He says, yo, man, let me tell you what happened last night. I had this dream. It's crazy, man. In this dream, there were like 11 bundles of wheat. And they all fell over at my feet and worshipped me. And then there was these, this like sun and stars, man, in the sky. And they, they worshipped me too. And the brothers was like, oh, we know what you're saying. Are we supposed to bow at your feet? And worship, will even our mother and father come and serve you? And before Joseph get the words out of mouth, they take the coat off, they grab Joseph, they throw him in a well, and they're going to leave him for dead. But pretty soon, some traders come down the road, and one of the brothers say, you know what, man, let's not kill him, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. And so they get him out the well, and they sell him into slavery. Now they got a problem. They go back home, and dad's going to want to know, where's my favorite boy with that pretty coat? And dad is heartbroken, and they go back out in the field and say, what are we going to do? So they, they take the coat, they tear the coat, they put animal's blood on the coat, and they take it back to dad and say, we, we think he got killed. Dad falls into this deep depression, so much so that the brothers regret it. We see Joseph again uh, in, in Egypt now. He's moved from his family's homeland, he's taken into Egypt, and he becomes a servant of a man named Potiphar. And Joseph now, a young man, he works hard for Potiphar, even though he's a slave. And as a slave, um, you know, as far as a slave's life can be good, he seems to have a good life. He, raises, he rises up the ranks in Potiphar's house, becomes Potiphar's right-hand man, and Potiphar puts him over everything in his home, man. And Joseph is running the joint, right? One problem. Potiphar's wife has a wandering eye, and it lands on Joseph. And she starts scheming about how she could have Joseph. And Joseph winds up one day in the house with her by himself, and she comes on to Joseph aggressively, really, because the Bible says Joseph left his coat there and ran out of the house. Now, this man's got problem with coats. If I was him, I'd never wear a coat again. <laughs> Care what the weather is like, man. I ain't wearing no coat. There's problems with coats, man. So Joseph runs out the house, right? Now Potiphar's wife got a problem. So she cries out that he's attacked her. He goes from being a slave to being in prison. And even though Potiphar trusted him and didn't believe his wife, for appearances sake, he imprisons Joseph. Joseph's in a jail cell, kind of wasting away, but in one sense, but in another sense, the godly young man just keeps working. And pretty soon he's advancing even in prison. You know, he's, he's kind of running joint in prison. A couple guys come to him who he's in prison with who used to work with Pharaoh. One was a baker, the other was a cupbearer. And they had dreams that they couldn't interpret. And they came to Joseph, and Joseph interpreted the dreams. Long story short, he said, look, one of you guys, both of you guys are going to get invited back to Pharaoh's house, and both of you guys are going to serve him in this wonderful meal. But one of you, after the meal, he's going to behead, and the other you will get to keep your head in your job, right? And he says to the one who's going to live, when you get out, remember me. Do you think he remembered Joseph? No, he didn't. Not for a couple years, until, interestingly, Pharaoh starts to have a lot of dreams. And there's one dream in particular that he can't get any interpretation for that leaves him restless. And then the cupbearer remembers, yo, man, it's this dude that was, you know, when I had that bid when I was in jail, it's this dude I was in there with who interprets dreams, man. You ought to ask Joseph. So Pharaoh summons Joseph. Joseph comes into Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh doesn't even tell Joseph the dream. He says, I tell you what, all of my magicians and sorcerers, they couldn't interpret it. If you got this kind of skill, you first tell me what the dream is, then tell me what it means. And you know God's at work in this, don't you? Joseph tells the man his dream down to the details, then tells him what it means. There's going to be seven years of plenty, 
seven years of famine. Pharaoh is so relieved and, and so helped by this interpretation that, that he, he promotes Joseph really over all of Egypt. Joseph is more powerful a man in Egypt except for Sarah, Pharaoh, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Now, seven years of plenty go on. Then begin the years of famine. And a couple of years into the famine, this band of men come down into Egypt where they hear that there's food. They've come with their father's blessing and their father's money to purchase food. They come to really beg that they might survive, and they find themselves before this Egyptian official, they think. And it's Joseph. Long story short, Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. They are, they are shocked that he's still alive. They go back and tell their father that he's still alive. Father doesn't believe him. Uh, they send the younger brother back. Father's scared now for the youngest brother. Uh, but Joseph takes them in, takes care of them. You know how long it had been between when they sold Joseph into slavery and when they f- discovered that Joseph is alive? 25 years. For 25 years, this boy had been a slave and a prisoner and now a servant to Pharaoh. You know how many years elapsed between when they discover it's Joseph and the day of this funeral? 17 more years. 42 years and no apology from his brothers. 42 years and no reconciliation between them. Now you know why in verse 15, they feel like they've got a problem. Joseph might want payback. Now notice now, these guys are not living with providence in mind, and it, and it produces three problems for them. Three problems for them. Notice the problem, or, or three points I want us to observe. Notice the first, first of all, the problem in verse 15. You see how they put it there? They say, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. In other words, they're recognizing that, you know what, this guy would be right to be vexed with us, to, to, to indeed hate us. Why? Look at the word you use there. Because of all the evil that we have done to him. Not that we have simply wronged him. Not that simply we've been a bad brother to him. They don't, they don't sort of see that they've made some mistakes in their relationship with Joseph. No, they, they confess these things we have done are so wickedly wrong that they can only be called evil. And he may have been waiting for such a time as this until our father has died. And no grief would be caused to our father in order to exact his revenge. Think about those brothers for a moment. For 25 years, they're walking around thinking, looking at their father's grief, and they recognize they caused it by what they did with Joseph. For 25 years, they are feeling the sting of their guilt Every time Joseph's birthday comes around and he's not there. Every time they see merchants travel through their hometown, I'm pretty sure their minds go back to those merchants to whom they sold their brother. And I don't know, but if there's a Hebrew equivalent of Father's Day or Mother's Day, every Father's Day, they they would be saddled with some pinch of guilt 
and sadness. Then you come down 25 years, and one day you see the dude. And, and he's, he's the most powerful man in all of Egypt. And now you're not only feeling guilty, but now you're feeling what? Fear. What will he do to us in exchange for the evil we have done to him? Now, I don't know if you've come this morning ever having thought much about God's providence and how God rules things in the world and the fact that he does rule all things in the world. But here's my guess. If, if you don't think that way or if you reject that, Chances are your outlook on life is defined by the sense that life is out of control, that life is somewhat random, or you have the sense that life is in my control, and you're trying more and more to sort of control the things that are happening in this world, which, which really every day tell you are beyond your control. And if ever you admit that, the most natural reaction is fear. If I'm not in control, and in fact there is no one controlling things, and I look around with any sense of awareness and see the, the, the evil that is around me, and in fact sometimes the evil that I do, if no one's in control, the only thing that's left is survival of the fittest, isn't it? Man against man, dog-eat-dog world. The only thing that's left is a kind of brute force to provide some kind of protection. Now, Joseph's brothers aren't thinking about God and his providence, and they've been brought to the end of their assumption. They've been brought to that point where their fear, and perhaps what they fear most, has ballooned up into their neck, and they're choking on that anxiety. What will Joseph do? But not only fear, we see that from the problem, but notice their plan, the evidence again of the guilt, verses 16 and 17. So they sent the message to Joseph saying, now this is interesting, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now, the, the reason I find that uh, an interesting sort of phrasing is nowhere in Genesis or else, in, anywhere else in the Bible are we told that Jacob ever said this. They need a plan. They need a scheme. And they don't feel that on the basis of their brotherhood to Joseph or on the basis of his love for them, they don't feel that they can trust that. So they, they put their words, their plan in their father's mouth. You know how it goes when someone passes in the, in the family and there's some dispute about things in the family. Sooner or later, somebody says, well, before they died, they told me. <laughs> and, you know, you can't get no witness to that, can you? I was up here one day and it was just me and them, and they told me this is how they wanted things or they wanted me to have this, right? You know, it, it, the, the one time that, that sort of human tendency to selfishness and manipulation comes out so plentifully in our families is at funerals and deaths. As they argue about inheritance and estates and all of that good stuff. So here's a free piece of advice. Plan a will. <laughs> you know, go, go ahead, get it notarized, have a lawyer look at it so there's no, no dispute. Save your family that hassle. Jacob didn't do that. 
The brothers here say, your daddy said before he died, you should forgive us. That's their plan. And they launch that plan because they don't have a sense of God's providence, that God is at work in this situation. The only thing worse than being controlled by fear is being controlled by fear and guilt. And what does guilt do? It just pushes you further away from the one that you need to be related to, doesn't it? When you know you have wronged someone, done something to them, but for years now, in this case, you've never confessed it, you've never owned it, you've never repented of it, you've never tried to make it right. All it does over time is push you further and further away from that one you've wronged, doesn't it? And this is what's happening with the brothers. They ask for forgiveness, but they have no confidence they will receive it. And they have no confidence they will receive it because in a worldview that's built on survival of the fittest, where no one's in control but the strong, you don't tend to expect mercy from people, do you? Notice the third thing. They, they not only uh, are sort of having this problem, they're not only making this plea in 16 to 17, but verse 18, notice the position they put themselves in. It's one of utter dependence. Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. It's interesting, isn't it? They, they claim at the end of verse 17, did you notice this? that they were servants of, of God, the God of their fathers. But in verse 18, they're falling down at Joseph's feet, and they're claiming that they are servants of Joseph. Now, here's the question. Which do you think they feared more, man or God? Here we're seeing this great expression of their fear of man rather than their fear of God, of their, their dependence upon man because of that fear rather than their dependence upon God. They don't have any sense of his providence, and so they think that their lives are really down to the whims of some angry brother whom they wronged in the past, rather than being in the hands of God who rules all things. You see, beloved, when we don't know that God is at work in all things to care for his people, even though, even though we be related to kings and queens, we, we have no security. No sense that the universe is going to work itself out in justice and goodness and love. We're tempted to think that our fate is in the hands of people rather than God. We tend to think that we depend upon the favor of man who appears to be stronger and in more control in our situation than even God is. And so we prostrate ourselves before men rather than prostrate or bow before God. Compare these brothers to Daniel. Remember Daniel, who dared to pray in public to God even though it was against the laws of his land, and, and who was happy to, to face the wrath of a human king in order to pray publicly to his God. Or the three Hebrew boys, you remember them? Shadrach, Meshach, and that bad Negro, you know? It's okay, you can laugh, you can laugh. You remember those three Hebrew boys? They would rather have been thrown into the fiery furnace than to eat the king's food and to worship the, the king as an idol. Or do you remember Esther? That wonderful woman, Esther, 
who's married to the king and who lives in a land where you cannot appear before the king without being summoned unless you be put to death. And Esther now says to Israel, you guys pray, I'm going to the king on our behalf. And, and what does she say? Do you remember? If I perish, I perish. Trusting in the God of hope instead of the men of the world. See, if we lose sight of providence, we lose sight of God. And as we lose sight of God, we only see men. And we forget the biblical model of all of the faithful people of God. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's providence that enables that. It's providence that enables you to look at the horses and chariots and the might of Egypt or the might of Artaxerxes and the might of Babylon. It's, it's providence that allows you to look at the, the might of the White House and say, we don't trust presidents, we don't trust senators, we don't trust representatives, we don't trust armies and generals and nuclear arms. We trust in the name of the Lord our God who is working all things according to his good and wise providence. Think about your life, beloved. Think about your view of the world. Consider these questions. Do you and I have a strong sense of God controlling all things for the provision and the protection of his creation? Or do we think of providence at all? Do you and I live in fear and or anxiety, worry and doubt? And and is that a symptom, beloved, of of a deeper problem of not really trusting God in those situations? What about our guilt? We've all done wrong. We've all done evil in God's sight. Do we labor under the weight of guilt and shame? Believing not that God is at work even in those things, but instead that we are alone in that guilt, alone in that shame, alone in that despair? Or do you take a view of your your wrong And you sort of say, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, I'm just going to get over this. I'm just going to get through this. I just need to to march on. Is that all that the world and life has to offer as a solution for our wrong, our guilt? Well, let's think about our relationship with other people. Here we see the relationship of brothers. What about our relationships? Will we say we respect God more or men more? Which would you say you depend on more? God or men? What does your prayer life suggest? What what does our stewardship decisions suggest? How we use our resources and our monies? If we could measure our generosity, what does our generosity suggest? That we trust God to provide or that we trust the things that that we have? 
And does providence have any help for you in those things? A life without an understanding of providence is a life lived in fear and guilt and dependence upon men rather than God. It's a life where people fret about living, about forgiveness, about their needs. But contrast that now to what we see with Joseph. Here's a life where one man depends upon the providence of God, and it could not be more different than the life of his brothers, even though circumstantially, in every measure of uh, material life, his life is actually the harder life. He's the, he's the slave. He's the one who's been in prison. He's the one who doesn't own his labor, who has no rights to his life. He's the one who's owned by another human being, and yet contrary to his so-called free brothers, he's the one who has his eye fixed on God and therefore sees life and the world radically differently. Look with me here. Notice, first of all, Joseph keeps his place before God. Verse 19, the brothers have bowed before him in verse 18 and asked for forgiveness. And Joseph said, listen, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Man, that's good theology right there. That is good theology. That's a good thing to remember. We are never in the place of God. God is God alone. God is the only God. God is the great God. And, and it's to our joy, it's to our blessing, it's to our benefit that we always keep in mind that he is God, our creator, and we are but dust. It's coming home practically right here in his relationship with his brothers. They're asking for forgiveness. And if he forgets his place before God, it'd be very easy for him to say, I don't forgive you. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to exact my revenge. But the Bible says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The Bible says that the anger of man does not produce the righteous results of God. And here is Joseph remembering, I am not God. I do not sit on a throne. though no, I stand at the right hand of Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in all the earth. He ain't God and I ain't either. All of our happiness... All of our peace, all of our strength, all of our hope, everything that is right and good and honorable and pure and lasting in life begins right here with this point of theology. God is God and I am not. Get that in order and so many other things begin to fall in place. In our relationships, get that right. God is God and I am not, so I'm free not to act like God. Even with family members who don't act right toward me, that relationship begins to move in the right direction. To remember that God is God and I am not, we will be rightly related to our jobs so that we're not overly dependent on our jobs. We're not workaholics. We don't think that my next payday is the thing that really kept me, but I could lose my job and God will still be God and he will still keep his promise to provide for my every need. Get that right and your relationship with work begins to move in the right direction. Here's Joseph with such rich theology coming out in such a practical, personal place, confessing that I am not in the place of God. Oh, the human heart needs to embrace that because in our sin, it so easily wraps itself around the notion that it's in control, 
that it's a kind of God, but it's not. Only God is God. And providence works for us when we remember our place before God. I mean, even think about your deep hurts here. No, no doubt Joseph was deeply hurt by his brothers, yeah? And here he is standing, prepared to forgive them. I mean, doesn't it teach us that in order to forgive deep hurts, we have to ask ourselves if we're playing God by sitting in judgment and withholding forgiveness? And then ask ourselves, wouldn't it be better if we let God be God and we trust him? That's what Joseph is able to do. He has freedom, not fear, like his brothers. And, and notice, not only does he let God be in his place, but he, he gets a God-centered perspective on his suffering. He's not denying that they did him wrong. Notice what he says in verse 20. As for you, his brothers, you meant evil against me. He uses the same word that they use, right? They, they, are, they are seeing the situation exactly the same way. You did me evil. You meant evil toward me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What's he saying there? God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. And his providence includes all of the 42-year history that's happened between the time you sold me into slavery and the time that we are here mourning our father's death. Everything that's come into my life has come first through the fingers of God. I know you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Our statement of faith has a wonderful way of catching this. Look at, look at chapter 2, our statement of faith on page 9. We're going to look at, at 2 and look at 4. I love the first line of chapter 2. Nothing happens by chance or outside the sphere of God's providence. Say that with me. Nothing happens by chance or outside the sphere of God's providence. Nothing, beloved, has ever come into our lives randomly by chance. God has been ruling it all. As God is the first cause of all events, they happen immutably, that's unchangeably, and infallibly, that means perfectly or without error, according to his foreknowledge and decree to which they stand related. Yet by his providence, God so controls them. The everything that happens in our life, he so controls them. And the evil people who do those things, that second causes operating either as fixed laws or freely or in dependence upon other causes play their part in bringing them about. What's that saying? That's a lot of clauses there. What is he saying? He says, listen, everything is working just as God has intended. Now, God didn't do you evil. The other person, Joseph's brothers, did him evil, but God was in such control that even the evil that Joseph's brothers did, God was using to work the good that he produced. And it doesn't matter. It could have been things that were operating according to the laws of nature. You were up on the roof of your house, and you lost your mind for a moment, and you just decided you were going to walk off the roof. And what happened? You discovered gravity. The laws of nature pulled you back to the ground. It could have been by the laws of nature, or it could have been by something that was free in its will, free in its choice. The coworker who decided, even when you asked him to keep the confidence, to tell someone else something that damaged or hurt you, 
doesn't matter whether it was a law of nature or something acting freely. It's all beneath the umbrella of God's control. And look at uh, chapter 4 of our statement. (laughs) God's almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness are so far-reaching and all-pervading that both the fall of the first man into sin, as Adam and Eve, and all other sinful actions of angels and men, that includes us, they proceed according to his sovereign purposes. It is not that he gives his bare permission, for in a variety of ways he wisely and powerfully limits orders, and governs sinful action so that they effect his holy designs. Yet the sinfulness involved in the actions proceeds only from angels and men and not from God who being most holy and righteous neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. That's good theology. That's what James means when he says that God doesn't tempt anyone with evil. That's what the Bible means when it says that God is not the the author of confusion. God is holy and righteous and just. And you say, well, how is he in control? Well, it's something called secondary causes. Sinful men and fallen angels do evil things. God knew that they would do it. And in a sense, they are part of God's plan, which he knew before the foundation of the world. And they are all happening according to his plan. Yet he didn't do it. He's ruling toward his good providence. Let me give you an illustration. Some of you are old enough to remember this. Many of you will go home and Google it. There used to be something called record players. <laughs> and these big round things, kids, called records that you couldn't leave in the sun lest they, <laughs> they melt and warp, had little grooves on them. And records had an A side and a B side. It means you had music on one side, you put a little needle in the groove, and somehow mysteriously music would come out, right? And you listen to all the songs on the A side, but if you had to listen, you want to listen to songs on the B side, you had to actually, you had to do something physical, kids. You actually had to flip the thing over, right? And put it in the, in the groove on the other side and listen to the B side. Here's what, but you're going to listen to one side at a time. Jeff, don't laugh too loud now, young man. Here's God's providence. God's providence is the A side of his purposes and the B side of of created action, the creature's action, playing at the same time. But what you're going to hear over and over again for the rest of eternity is the A side because it was all working to bring together God's purposes and plans. Oh, yeah, on the underside, beneath here on earth, we're acting and doing things all the time. And all you need to do is watch the local news to see how man is losing its mind in sin. But let us never forget that over that wicked dark tune is this glorious tune of light that God is working providentially in every situation to make Romans 8.28 true. That all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. The A side is what we'll sing in glory. The B side will be the one hit wonders we long forget. God is at work. And Joseph sees it in all of his suffering, in all of his trials, in all of his hurts. Joseph says, you know what? You meant it for evil, but I see God. 
I see his hands. I see his work. He's been up to something all the while. He's been working it out behind my back. But now I see, notice verse 20. He was bringing it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God had sinful brothers sell their younger brother into slavery, had him work as a slave and gain the respect of his master, and had a sinful wife frame him for assault and had him imprisoned for a number of years so he could be next to a cupbearer and a baker and interpret their dreams, a gift he hasn't used for 20 20 years. And and he moves the the baker and the cupbearer out of jail and puts the cupbearer next to Pharaoh and spares his life for another two years until he can remember this guy in prison who interprets dreams and and can relay that to Pharaoh who's been restless, sleeping with worry. Now, I want you to know, Pharaohs don't have worries. They put their worries to death. They are absolute monarchs. If they want to rule or change something with the fiat, with the word, they change it. But this man can't sleep because God is haunting him in his dreams because he has a dream interpreter that he's brought to Egypt to interpret that dream in order that many people would be saved by Joseph's wisdom, including the people of promise, Israel, Joseph's very own family. Joseph says in verse 20, God, I see you. I see you at work. And it makes all the difference in his life. We should learn to read and interpret and understand our lives, especially our pains, in light of the providence of God. The hard things especially. Because those are the things that most tempt us to look away from God and to look down at our pain as though our pain is everlasting and God is not. No, no, no. The faithful, the wise, those helped by God's grace, they look to his providence and then read their lives. And this is what Joseph does here in verse 20. Notice one other thing about Joseph. Joseph can not only put himself in the proper place in relationship to God, and he can not only sort of see with a proper perspective about God's work in his life, but Joseph can pledge even to his enemies the riches of grace. You see it there in verse 21? He responds to his brothers, do not fear I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And that's what grace is. Grace is kindness shown to those who don't deserve it. And that's what Joseph is showing his brothers. They don't earn his kindness. They they have done everything to lose his kindness. I, I would guess that if Joseph were to put them to death, they would say you were right to do so because they know their deeds were evil. But here is Joseph treating them better than their sins deserve being more kind to them than they could ever claim from him. And Joseph understands that that he has received God's providential grace, and now he is to show it to his family and to others. Because he can respond in grace, he can forgive, and notice he can more than forgive. He can provide for the needs of others. I'll take care of you and your children. I have 
forgotten what has happened in the, in the sea of forgiveness. And now positively I move toward you and I will share with you what you don't deserve. I will share with you all that you need. Is there anyone in our lives to whom we need to show this kind of grace? We have received grace from God if we are believers in Christ. God falls upon us because we trust that this same God is at work in our lives to extend this same kind of grace in forgiveness and beyond forgiveness, in kindness and provision even. Joseph can do that. And Joseph could look even beyond this life. You see there in verses 23 to 26? It's a remarkable passage. Joseph says, now, I'm going to die, and they're going to bury me here. But believing in God's providence, listen, God's going to come visit you one day, and he's going to take his people up out of this land back into the promised land. Now, when that happens, y'all dig up my bones and take me with you. It's his belief in God's promise that allows him to see even beyond his own natural life to the completion of God's promises well beyond his own death. Providence frees us for this life and the life to come. One of the most remarkable acts of providence was read earlier when our brother Colin read Acts chapter 2 for us. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Let me read these three verses to you. There, Peter is standing up preaching the first Christian sermon there at Pentecost. And he says to his hearers, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up, notice, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's the A side of the album. You crucified. And killed by the hands of lawless men. That's the B-side of the album. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The greatest demonstration of God's providence, of his protection and provision, of his guidance and his care to his creation is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's at the cross of Jesus Christ where sinful men put the Son of God to death. But it's also at the cross of Jesus Christ where the purposes of God are being accomplished. The purpose to save sin from their sin and from the judgment of God to come. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ where God plays the A-side so loudly that the Son of God got up from the grave and those who believe in him come dancing out of the grave by faith too. It's at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where God proves that he is governing all things, even the evil actions of men who would dare raise their hands against the creator of the universe and he will raise them from the dead and then take sinners and recreate them in the image and likeness of his very own son. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ where God's working and ruling and planning and guiding and providing for us is most beautifully and wondrously displayed. For that's how our fear and our guilt 
and our dependence upon men when we live with no knowledge of providence is all finally addressed with God's acceptance and faith and dependence upon God through Jesus Christ, his son. If you've never thought about providence and you've never thought about Jesus, you've never thought about being a Christian, think about it right now. Think about it right now. For of all the places you could be in the world, of all the states of being you could be in right now, of all the conditions you could have which would make it impossible for you to hear this announcement about Jesus' death and resurrection to save sinners, of all of the events that have happened over the last week, God has worked in all things to bring you here right now. This is by providence. It's by design. It is not by chance. And why would he bring you here? Healthy enough to hear a sermon. Patient enough to hear it this long. Interested enough to to look at me now. Why, Why would he bring you here at the invitation of a friend? Why would he bring you here at the death of a loved one? Why would he bring you here in all the circumstances that he has organized so that you would sit here and hear this sermon? This is not merely something you chose to do. You did do that, but it is something that God has been at work in. He has brought you here with this definite purpose that you might hear something wonderful, that even though you are a sinner and you have no place before God, it would be right for you to be like Joseph's brothers and to cast yourself down before God afraid that he is going to put you to death because of your sin and judge you and be right to judge you. Even though you should be prostrate, scared, trembling before a holy God, God stands before you like Joseph willing to forgive you saying, I am in my place. I am God alone. I'm the ruler of the universe. I'm the savior of sinners. I am the only one who can forgive sins. And he's standing right before you saying, do not fear. Do not fear. Only believe. Only trust. Turn to me and I will give you what you could never secure for yourself. I will give you life. I will give you eternal life. I will provide for you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And everything that Jesus Christ, my son, has done and everything that he is it will be yours his righteousness will be yours his atonement for sins will be yours his life will be yours only believe repent of sins trust in Christ hold to him by faith and you will be saved you will be rescued from the judgment of God against sin and more than rescued you will be brought into the family of God as a child of his. This is the wondrous good news that God has taken our place, that his death and resurrection means our life. If you've never believed in Christ, today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts in unbelief. Do not pull away from this message. Let nothing distract you. Today is the day of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept him for who he is, the son of God. Believe him for what he's done and crucified for sinners and raised from the grave and anticipate what he will bring you. 
an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting life, an everlasting love, all worked out by his providence. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. If you'd like to know more about what that means, we would love to tell you. We're going to be having snacks and coffee and tea. Some will be sort of hurrying off to Mother's Day lunches and all that good stuff. That's wonderful. Whether you go off and have lunch and dinner, whether you stick around with us, let me encourage you to talk about how you can have this relationship with Christ if you don't already have it. And to talk about the providences of God that are so richly displayed in all of his creation. I love the way the Puritan John Flavel puts it. He says, those who observe providences or observe providence will have providences to observe. If we would but look, we will see the hand of God at work all around us. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we pray that you would amaze us with a deeper realization that even now you are causing all things to work together according to your counsel and your will and all things to work together for the good of those who love you. Oh, Lord, help us to see your mysterious hand. And when we cannot trace your hand, help us to trust your heart. Grant that we would live like Joseph and not his brothers with a sense, O oh Lord, that you are with us and controlling things for us at all times. Lord, I pray that your people would be strengthened in this hope. Lord, and I pray that those who came this morning who didn't know you, they would receive this hope through faith in Christ even now. Oh, Lord, keep us as you have been keeping us. Only let us see it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.